and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Trevor Reagan is the founder of The Learner Lab, an educational website designed to unpack and share the science of learning and development. And you're going to find out really quickly that Trevor loves to learn. He spends his time with thought leaders and researchers from the worlds of psychology and developmental science. He consumes their research, he connects the dots, and shares it with anyone that will listen. And we talk today about how he uses curiosity and listening to then piece together different ideas and different concepts to blend them so that ultimately we can all learn, grow, develop, and become better at whatever it is that we're trying to do. He's worked with professional college and Olympic sports teams, Fortune 50 companies, prisons, and in hundreds of schools across the country. He provides workshops that are designed to help people understand and apply important principles of development in order to become better, more resilient, 
learners. And at Trevor's core, he is definitely someone who loves to learn, but he also loves to share. And his content that he puts out, you can find it on social media, you can find it by following his podcast or his YouTube channel, is extremely intentional, thoughtful, really, really well done. And I credit him that in the beginning and at the end of today's conversation. I think you're going to find Trevor to be really intentional with how he sees the world. He doesn't see it as a one size fit all system or situation. And he's still continuing to try to strive to learn and to grow and develop. And we're all fortunate that he's invited us to join him along the way. So this conversation flew by. I looked up at about the hour mark and said, gosh, we could be talking for another hour or two. Those are usually great conversations. I think you're going to love it. So here is Trevor Reagan. Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Before we hit record, I was talking to you about just your content. And if you've never heard of Trevor or unfamiliar with him, the only reason we're having this conversation is because I watched one of his clips on Generations and it was so well done. And it hit the mark so much that I ended up sharing it in my newsletter and it's just real high quality content. And we'll probably talk about content creation in today's (laughs) conversation, but you can pause this podcast now and go over to Trevor's website and and we'll give him time at the end to promote it. Um, But please check out his work. It's, it's awesome. And I don't always start a podcast that way. Um, So I'm starting it that way and he's not paying me any money to say this. It's just the full truth. And if you've been listening to any of the 340 plus episodes, it's very rare that I start a podcast that way. So um, congrats on everything you've done so far. And I know you're just getting started Um, where I thought we'd start is just this idea of learning and Mm -hmm. it's clear, like you're a pretty young dude and uh, you went to an undergrad that is hard to get into. Uh, You went to Duke, Um, Mm -hmm. but talk to us about learning and people say they're a lifelong learner. Um, like what do you hear when you hear learning and lifelong learning? Like what comes up for you? I think in a way like learning is underrated. It's something that it's not something that we think about a lot, but it's a word that we use a lot. And so kind of where I'm at is first learning is a skill. So like that's, you can't argue with that, that it is something that you can get better at. Like anyone listening can get better at getting better. So first of all, that's good news. Then layer two is sort of, well, if you think about it, learning is like the meta skill. So if if I'm good at learning, that's going to benefit me in like any scenario. Because if I'm good at learning, that means I'm better at solving problems and I can deal with change and I can build new skills when I need to. So getting good at learning isn't just for people in school. It's like, no, if you're getting good at getting good, that's going to benefit you in the workplace and sports. And so sort of where I've positioned myself, especially the last five years is, okay, if we know that it's a skill and we know that it's a really important skill, how do you get better at it? And that's sort of like been my North Star. Now, obviously, you know this just as well as I do, that there's so many answers to that question. And so what I try to do with my work and content is like filter through the science, the topics, and try to get to the ones that are the most effective and sort of universally beneficial. So I I like to focus on topics that maybe maybe there's topics out there that would be really important for an Olympic athlete to know, but wouldn't really help a fifth grader. 
I'm trying to find topics that are sort of universal, that if you understand these things, it will help you um, no matter who you are, or what you do. And so that's sort of the filtration system that I use to find the topics that I care about the most. And I'm not even saying that these are the only things that help you get good at learning, but what I've tried to spend as much time on as possible. What are the most effective that I can find and what are the most universal ones? So that's sort of where I spend my time. And where does your curiosity of learning come from? <laughs> uh, I think it's a combo. It's like looking backwards, I'm not going to make up some story like I had like this plan for 10 years to do this. I, I think a lot of it was luck. And then a lot of it was things that I didn't even know at the time were sort of like planting seeds in my head that led to this. I think the two things that are maybe the most clear, though, both my parents were coaches growing up. And so I was like, grew up in a gym, grew up around sports. And I think if you're in that world, naturally, you're going to be pretty curious about like, how do you get an edge? Like, how do I get more from my practice than the other person? How do I get better than them? So I think that was always part of the equation. Um, and I think the other one was I tried to go to Duke to walk onto the basketball team and almost made it, but I didn't. And that was like the worst, especially at that point in my life, like being 18 years old. And I thought that was like, if I make this team, this is the most important thing I can do in my life. And then to be close and fall short really sucked at the time. But looking back, I think without a doubt that planted a seed of like, wow, I thought I did everything that I could do, like the amount of time that I practiced, how much I cared about the goal and the way I pursued it. I thought I did everything right, but I still fell short. And so looking back, I think the seed that that was planted or the question that's been on my mind is like, what could I have done better? And I would say a combo of those things kind of led me down this path um, that I've been on for a while now. I'm imagining if you almost walked on to Duke, you probably could have played like division three basketball somewhere, or maybe yeah. even a lower division one opportunity. What was the uh, drive to go to probably the, I uh, look, I'm from Maryland. I grew up yeah, with a relationship yeah. with Duke that, that yeah. wasn't necessarily positive, but we've had on Elton brand. We've had Quinn mm -hmm. Snyder. We've had on Danny Ferry. I have an affection for Duke and my Maryland friends will kill me for saying this, mm -hmm. but a uh, deep, deep forget affection. I have respect like yeah. anyone in, involved in sports. There's no way you can truly be involved in sports in any capacity, not have immense respect for Duke, but why pursue that specifically as a 17 year old teenager and in, in making your decision on where you want to go to school? It, it was honestly kind of the Rudy dream of like, I, there was places that I could have played that were smaller and I loved the game of basketball, but there was just something about like, if I could like, get in for one minute in a game in Cameron, something about, I, 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 to be honest, I don't know what it was, but that seemed like really, really cool to, to try to chase. And then look, like I didn't make the team, but I did get to be a manager and practice player for a couple of years. And that was awesome just to be around coach K and everybody. And so I learned quite a bit doing that. Um, looking back, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, all that being said, it was really hard for me. And I didn't really deal with that setback well at the time. Like, I think if I could go back with maybe my mindset now, I would have learned even more from the two years I spent with the team. 
But to be real with you, during those two years, I was like really angry and hurt that I didn't make the team. Like I was mad that I had to make Gatorade for the guy that beat me out and wipe up his sweat every day. And so like, even though on paper, you and I can talk now about like, wow, Coach K was there and Johnny Dawkins and Wojo, and you got to go to the games and sit behind the bench and be in the meetings. It's like, yeah, we could list hundreds of opportunities that I had to grow, but I'll be real. Like I didn't take as advantage of those opportunities in the way that I maybe would have now that if I could go back and do it again, I think I could have like grown so much more from that experience than I did. And again, looking back, I, I see the way that my mindset in a way got in the way of the learning and growth that could have happened or the opportunities that were like right in front of my nose. It's interesting for me, there was a watershed moment in my life where I handled adversity differently than how I had handled it in the past. And I'll give a quick yeah. story about that because it was pretty transformative for me. I got cut from a high school basketball team. I said, F you, you're lost. You don't have a point guard anymore. <laughs> you know yeah. what? They didn't lose any sleep about losing five foot nothing, 100 nothing to use your Rudy reference, uh, yeah. Brian Levinson, right? I remember not um, getting accepted for Teach for America out of college. Uh -huh. um, and once again, like... Uh, they're lost. They don't have the great Brian Levinson. I'm pretty sure Teach for America did not lose sleep about losing me. Um, right. And so I had like these moments of rejection where my mindset was very much like, I'll show them, you know, mm -hmm. watch mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. Screw you. And then I was applying to this executive coaching program at Georgetown. And mm -hmm. at that point I was probably 30 and I had already gotten my master's in sports psychology. I was working with professional sports teams, college sports teams. I felt like I was doing pretty good and I get, I don't get accepted, rejected. And yeah. I remember I was out to dinner. It was my birthday and I walk in, I get the email. I look at it. I'm like, Oh, I didn't get in. And I go to my parents and my wife, I go, you know, I didn't get into Georgetown. And they looked at me and they said, their loss. Mm. I thought about it and I ate my dinner it was a steak dinner. And I went home that night and I was like, it's not their loss. <laughs> they're not, they're <laughs> not like going to lose anything of this. Right. And the next morning I woke up and I started emailing professors and I reached out to the school to try to get feedback on why I didn't I get accepted? Mm -hmm. Can you give me any information? And mm -hmm. I just went on this journey over the next year. And I learned so much more about that program and that, that right. school and what went into it. And I reapplied and I got in and when nice. I was in the second time, like after being rejected, my mindset was so much different than it would have uh -huh. been had I been accepted yeah. right of, yeah. right when it happened. And for me, this gets to a point. I love your content because it's nuanced in a world yeah. where we have clips and 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 even like research gets boiled down. Like you do a really <laughs> good job to try to paint a broader picture. Yeah. And I want to get into adversity because we hear all the time, you know, we learn from adversity. And, and what I would say is like those first two examples of getting cut from the team and not making, not getting accepted for teach for America. I don't think I learned anything from those experiences. Right. Yeah. I learned something the third time because I actually chose mm -hmm. to reflect on what happened and to pursue it. And so, like, I think we say adversity makes us stronger and I don't think it's actually true. It's, it's well, if you're yeah. choosing to step into it, right. so I see you nodding your head and giving me thumbs up. So talk to me <laughs> about how you view uh, adversity in, in terms of even what you went through at Duke um, yep. or beyond that, maybe in, in the future version of Trevor. I think it's just about going deeper into the cliches that everyone shares on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's like, 
there's truth to these things that people say, like learn from mistakes, uh, failure makes you stronger. It's like, that's true, but that's like the tip of the iceberg that for that to be true, though, there's things that have to happen, which is, okay, I can learn from a mistake. Yes, that's a common saying, but I have to do things with the mistake. So I make a mistake, then I have to sort of own the mistake I have to reflect on what went into that mistake. I have to make adjustments accordingly and I have to try again. So those are like four different steps that go into me being able to learn from a mistake. It's not just as simple as like, yeah, just go mess up and you're good. Like that's how you learn. It's like, no, you have to be kind of intentional with the process. And the same is true with setbacks and failure. It's like, I would say with my Duke situation that, okay, I can in a way look backwards now and see that I grew some from that experience sort of by accident. Cause it, I wasn't like treating that setback as a learner. I wasn't like trying to get the most out of the situation. Cause like I said earlier, I was so just angry and ashamed that I didn't make the team. That being said, like the failure sent me in a different direction Yes, all those things were like kind of out of my control, though, that when we're really doing it well, it's sort of like understanding that the situation we're in maybe isn't ideal, but there can be some growth and opportunities like baked in it. And when I'm in that learner mode, I'm searching for those opportunities and trying to take advantage of them. And then maybe the thing that the aha moment that I've had with that process or the topic that maybe has helped me the most is when I was younger in doing this, I, I watched some of my old videos or old interviews and I would say things like, love the struggle, love the setbacks, love the mistakes. And again, that's just LinkedIn, that's Twitter. It sounds good. You could make a poster out of it. But I also think it's like super unfair to talk about setbacks and mistakes in that way that love is a good word, but not for things like that. And so the way I talk about it now is using words more like appreciate. Like you don't have to love a loss and you don't have to love getting rejected from Georgetown. You don't have to love getting cut from Duke, but we can appreciate that within those setbacks, there are opportunities. And I think shifting the language like that is a little bit more aligned with the, sci the, the science because I think where people go wrong, if we're using words like love, enjoy the mistakes, enjoy the setbacks. It's like, when I'm doing it, it doesn't feel good. Uh-oh, I'm not enjoying it. I'm doing something wrong. And so I guess where I'm, what I'm trying to underline is you can feel crappy and angry and embarrassed or whatever you're feeling when you're experiencing a setback and you can grow at the same time. It's not one or the other. Yeah, it can be two truths there. And when we ignore or put it under the rug, any emotion, uh, it tends to build and, and show yeah. up in, in other ways. <laughs> You've got me thinking, though, and I want to run this by you. I haven't really thought this before, so we'll do it <laughs> Sweet. A lot, you know, on a microphone. Um, there are certain words that I feel like get co-opt and learning education right so yeah we go yeah. to school to learn or i think of like mm -hmm. faith and religion like mm -hmm, you have mm -hmm. to go to church to have faith mm -hmm. and those are just two examples is like the the school is where you learn the mm -hmm. churches or whatever religious um building mm -hmm. you want to associate to that's where you go for faith or prayer 
Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about maybe how we get that wrong. And yeah, I, and when you say like learning is key, when it's not the adversity, it's the learning from the adversity that actually matters. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering like, what can our systems or institutions do differently so that we don't necessarily have this, especially if it's negative, like if someone goes to school, no, no, like high school kids, like, oh, I love school. Like, that's not a thing. So as a result, they might not love learning or or reading or Mm -hmm. whatever. It's like, I don't know what you were like in religious school. I didn't love religious school. So Mm -hmm. now it's like, I don't really love faith. Well, yeah. Or spirituality. Like I'm wondering what we can do to change some of those so that we don't always associate as a society or as humans, the thing with the institution. Yeah, I think I'm with you 100% that I was not a good student at all at all. Like I barely scrapped by even at Duke. And Wait, how did you get into Duke if you weren't a good student? Uh because I was from Wyoming and they probably needed someone from every state. And I had a 4.0 in high school, but it wasn't because I was like super smart. It was just the long con to get into Duke. I was like, I have to have a 4.0 to get into Duke. I'm going to get a 4.0. So it's like but you didn't, didn't work, work hard. You didn't work hard. Uh, to get no, I worked really, really hard to get the 4.0. I wasn't like naturally super smart. And I was like from a small town in Wyoming. It wasn't like the hardest school. Um, but then even at Duke, it's like I struggled a lot because I just didn't like I didn't see too much value in the topics and the classes I was taking. Um, I had this idea that I'm probably just going to be a high school teacher so I can be a high school coach and that most of these topics and courses don't really matter. And I just need to like pass. And again, you see my mindset getting in the way of learning. And so like, I was a really unengaged student for like my whole education, but now I love learning. (laughs) So it's like way different. And what's the difference? One is I I think I've developed an excitement that now the way I think about learning, and I was just talking to someone about this. I can't remember who it was. So like if I go in and do like a, a workshop or I'm working with a group, you can kind of see the different ways that information is received. I think maybe sometimes people's default approach is when you're exposed to new information, you can kind of frame it as like an attack or a threat. It's like, oh, this means what I'm doing is wrong. And you're sort of like resistant to new information or you don't see the value in it. Now I look at learning as more of a treasure hunt. It's like, if I get to learn a new topic, I get like really excited. And so now I'm doing things that I hated in school. It's like when I'm building out a new video or podcast episode, I'm spending hundreds of dollars downloading the scientific papers and like staying up all night reading these papers that those were the papers that I was like skipping and refusing to read in college. And so I think now seeing that learning is like a treasure hunt, seeing the value of the things that I'm learning. And then the other thing, and and I hope everyone listening like connects these dots. It's like, We live in the best time ever for learning right now, that the resources are unbelievable. They're everywhere. And of course, there's downsides to a lot of these things like Twitter, TikTok, all YouTube, but there's so much value there. There's so much good information. A lot of the resources are free and I don't even care what people are learning. It's just helping them understand that we all have like 
hundreds of big and small skills within our grasp. And if we just start grabbing a few more of them, one, it's beneficial. It'll make us better at what we do. But two, it's really fun. It's exciting, especially when you get the momentum going of like, you you realize it's like, wow, it doesn't take me as long as I thought to learn something new. I can learn enough to be dangerous in a couple of days. And you do that once and it starts to get like, you start to build that momentum and pretty soon you're grabbing new skills and getting better at stuff. And I see people doing this and I, I really think it's a, mo a, mo a momentum thing and helping people like see that and to start that process. I think we can all develop an excitement around learning because I think we all have different things that we care about. And there's all sorts of stuff out there that will help us be better at what we do, what we care about. And yeah, once we get that ball rolling, I think it's super fun. Let's let's focus on you. Um, there's two things. One, I'll just capture. There's the idea of a challenge response or a threat response that you mm -hmm. were hitting on. Um, so, so that I want to just capture before we move on. And we can either look at something dangerous as a challenge or a threat. And there's times where we have to look at it as a threat. But mm -hmm. when I'm thinking of you, I, I read this, I think, yesterday. Like, what is more important? Is it curiosity or listening? And for those that have listened to this podcast, you know, I'm Mr. Curiosity. Like I think mm -hmm. curiosity is just a complete game changer. And that if like you're, you're saying of, if we valued learning more as a society, what would we look like? I think the same with curiosity is like, what would it look like if we all just were a little more curious? Yeah. This article got me thinking, is it, is it curiosity or is it listening? And I'm not sure. I'm like wondering <laughs> about it. And you are a learner. Like that literally yeah. is everything that you're about right now is trying to learn and then share and teach what mm -hmm. you're learning. And, and I'm curious, like, are you more of a listener or more someone who's curious? And I'm putting them as binaries. They don't have to be, but the article yeah. sort of made me wonder about that for myself. And I'm, I'm sort of curious for you. I think I've never thought about it either. I think a combo is good. But I think in a way, curiosity is super underrated. So like, it's so, I think it's more interesting to go through life being curious. So like, if something happens, even if it's like a tough thing or an annoying thing, it's easy to get angry or frustrated. And like, no matter what, you're probably not going to get rid of the emotional response. But like, turning on the curiosity side of the brain, even when stuff like that happens, is just like a little bit more fun and interesting of like, huh, why did that happen? Huh? What can I learn from this? And so I, I, th I think the curiosity side is underrated, but we also know that a big piece of learning is just being open-minded and listening to people smarter than you. And honestly, looking back, the best thing that I did when I started is I didn't know what I was doing. And so I was sort of a blank slate of like, I didn't have my three-step process of here's how to become a better learner. And now I'm going to go like push that. When I started, it was like, I have no clue, but I'm going to go read as much as I can. I'm going to go literally spend weekends with the researchers and ask them a bunch of dumb questions so I can like understand their work. And I'm just going to start gathering all this information. And then through that process, of listening to people way smarter than you. Now you begin to like connect dots. And like, to me, that's like flipping the cur curiosity switch, which is maybe for the first five years of doing this, I was just a reporter. It's like, here's this topic. 
here's a way to think about it. Here's the person that did the research. Here you go. And that was like the style of my content. At the five-year mark, I think I got to be a little bit more of the curiosity side, which is like connecting dots, which is, okay, these are two, maybe three separate areas of research. But if you zoom out, you see the way that these dots connect. And now I, I would say that that style of content, especially in our workshops, is really hitting with people. Um, and so I think it's like turning on and off these switches of, okay, I'm listening, I'm gathering, but now I can like take this information and with a curious mindset, connect dots and like create something that um, isn't there. It's like, now I'm being creative and curious and building something new from the material that I've been like gathering over time. Yeah. You started our conversation by saying learning is a skill. Yeah. And I yeah. think curiosity and listening are both skills. Yeah. People say to me all the time, they're like, you're such a good listener. Well, when I was in grad school in 2009, <laughs> I, they would ask us to write down one thing we wanted to work on for that yeah. quarter. You're in the quarter system. And I would write, become a better listener. Yeah. And I kept writing it over every time they'd ask. And so, yeah, I'm a better listener now because I focused on it, learned how to do it and got mm -hmm. better at it. But I'm also thinking about as a parent and curiosity with kids is just everywhere. <laughs> You cannot 100%. five-year-old who's not curious. So I believe curiosity is very innate and is in us for a lot of reasons, mainly mm -hmm. for survival purposes, mm -hmm. but listening, I don't know, man, I got two kids. Like mm -hmm. they are listening when I least expect them to listen, but then their skill and their ability to listen is not always, not always mm -hmm. there. And so it's just got me wondering about these elements and I don't know, like it is, Yeah, I'm so fascinated by curiosity. I don't know if I've spent as much time being curious about, about listening. And yeah. I yeah. absolutely am guilty of listening to respond rather than listening yeah. to understand. And sure. like that thing gets in the way of me learning all the time. Cause I love me yep. some me. And, and when I love me yeah. some me, I'm like, oh, I got a response that Trevor's going to yeah. love. And yep. I don't yep. stay with it. Even right now, like I'm, I had a response. Let's go there. I don't always yep. stay with it. Uh, I'm stay the with same. Curiosity long enough. Yeah, I'm the same. What what I do like that you just said, and something that I hope everyone listening remembers from this conversation. More things are skills than we realize, and so this is something that I spend a lot of time on when I'm working with groups. Is sometimes we're so narrow-minded in what we think a skill is. Like if you ask someone like, what's a skill? Like the first thing that comes to mind is like riding a bike or doing math and stuff like that. It's like, no, we need to expand our definition of skills. If someone can get better at the thing, we can consider it a skill, which means we could get better at that thing too. I'm not saying we're going to like reach their level overnight, just understanding that that is a skill that can be improved. I think that's really important. So like the way that you framed it was perfect. Listening is a skill. Can you get better at listening? Yeah. Are some people going to be naturally better than others? Yeah. But this is something that you and I can get better at if we're like intentional about doing it and treat it as a skill and get some reps, get some practice, reflect on it. How, how could I do this better? When you treat these things as skills, you're going to spend more 
more time being intentional about building them, you're going to get better at them, which is again, another piece up really well, which is that definition of learning. We think of it just like within the walls of a school, but it's like, when I look at it this way, you see, well, if listening is a skill, so is creativity and so is curiosity and so is leadership and so is giving feedback and so is receiving feedback, all those things you could get better at. And so when you kind of get into that learner mode of like, whoa, there's all sorts of stuff that I maybe didn't consider skills, but they're all around me. And now I'm spending a little bit more time building those skills. And then the, the amazing thing is... is so I interviewed this neuro, his name is Michael Merznik, and he's known as like the father of neuroplasticity, which is the research that shows like when you learn stuff, your brain like changes in the process. And so he he spends a lot of time in the interview talking about like, yep, sk skills are basically circuits that through action and practice over time, your brain will reinforce that circuit. You could fire it better. But he goes, what I hope more people understand is the machinery in our brains that controls learning, that's also plastic. And what he means by that is every time we choose to be intentional about a new skill and practice it, try to build it, yes, we're going to get better at that skill, but we're also becoming a better learner in the process. And like, if you think about that, what a snowball effect that can be. If I'm more intentional about my learning, I'm stacking new skills. And every time I'm doing that, I'm getting better at the bigger skill of learning, which helps me acquire more skills. And so again, I'm I'm excited about this because it's, it's not just something um, that I'm like trying to push forward. It's like, no, when you have those conversations with scientists like that, who teaches you an idea like that, or a, like a topic like that, it's so cool. And I just wish more people understood that. Yeah. It's almost like if I go to the gym and I see the rewards and I see myself changing, then I'm more likely to want to keep mm -hmm. going to the gym. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so there's something addictive to yeah. the, the learning process. I, uh -huh. I want to talk about growth mindset because everything that you just captured could be summarized into Carol Dweck's findings around growth mindset. And I know you're big on research and science and the challenge that I find we run into with growth mindset or grit or pick your theme of the day is that we say, we're going to apply this to everybody and our school <laughs> systems are learning this. It's like, okay, everyone needs to have a growth mindset. Everyone needs to have grit. And then we're like, whoa, 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 this may not actually be right for everybody. I am a growth mindset fan. I think the work that Carol Dweck did is incredible. I think Angela Duckworth's work on grit is incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was a great post by Brad Stolberg, who you actually remind me of, who wrote a great book, Peak Performance, and has written a couple mm -hmm. other books and has appeared on the podcast. And he yep. posted it today. He's like, look, if you're thinking this is a one size fits all deal, that's where you're going awry. And yep. um, so we can use these as like foundational and we need to think about for me, like I love having a fixed mindset when I'm trying to exercise, right? Uh, if I use an affirmation, I'm an exerciser. Like that's a pretty fixed mindset. Um, it can be massively helpful. Uh, I'm a great shooter as a basketball player, fixed mm -hmm. mindset. Like I, in that game, I'm not thinking I'm not a great shooter yet, right? Like it, mm -hmm. that can be for preparation. Um, mm -hmm. There was just a meta-analysis on the lack of quality of research on growth mindset. Um, and we've seen this, you know, Angela Duckworth's grit scale has been criticized. Um, 
And look, I have a psychology background. I went and got a master's in sports psychology. I believe in formal education. I believe in science. I believe in research. And psychology is still softer. It is. It's just a softer science um, than a lot of our hard sciences. Science and even our hard sciences have challenges in replication studies. You're obsessed with the the data, the research, the science. I'm curious to get your perspective on the state yep. of psychological research when you, I don't know yep. if you read the meta-analysis meta yep. on growth mindset. So I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on all of that. Yep. So I, I love, I haven't had a chance to like talk about this live because all these things have been just coming out over the last few months. And so here's how I think about, let's start with growth mindset. At its core, a growth mindset is the belief that I can change and grow and get better at stuff. And the fixed mindset is I kind of have what I have and can't change it. Cool. That idea should be taught to anybody anywhere. If, if you just keep it at that level of like, at its core, this is what it means. That we are humans, we have a brain, we have the capacity to change. Boom. That's fine. The problem is when people start adding things on top of that that aren't even related to the concept, but we like smash it in, that's where we start to run into issues where we make growth mindset into like, oh, always be positive. It's like, that's not a growth mindset. And so I think a lot of the problems are caused when we make it out to be something that it's not. Okay, so that's step one. Step two is new research that was just published in nature by david yeager shows to get the most out of growth mindset if we're trying to build like an intervention around it it's not just let's just talk about a school for instance but if a coach is listening to this same rules apply of like coach and players it's not just about giving an intervention to the students helping them build a growth mindset, and then you're done. That it ends up that the mindset of the leader is more important than we realized. So like, if you actually wanted to do this right, yes, you would spend time taking the students through an intervention, but you need to spend even more time on the mindset of the teacher, which is how do my beliefs shape the learning environment? How does like the, the, the way I think about learning change the way that I give feedback to people? And so the mindset of the leader underrated. We have to spend more time on that. But then the other cool thing, and that you and I touched on this topic a few minutes ago, when you bring in some of the stress and discomfort research into the intervention, it makes the growth mindset stuff more effective. And logically, this makes sense. Like you probably like connected these dots years ago, but now the science is coming out to show it, which is, okay, a growth mindset is the belief I could change. Well, you and I talk to people every day who believe they can learn something, but they still don't do it. Why? Well, more times than not, we don't like the feeling of change. We don't like the feeling of struggle or messing up. Well, a growth mindset doesn't solve that problem. A growth mindset is a belief in our capacity to change. It has nothing to do with how we feel. And so then you have to draw in some of like Aaliyah Crumb's research around stresses enhancing mindset. Um, and when you do this, and you combine the two, it actually enhances both. So there is this awesome study that David Yeager, again, he publishes in Nature, which is like the most badass thing you can do as a researcher, where they looked at like students from a really, really poor school. And they looked at students 
um, at a private university. And they divided them into four groups, which is growth mindset only intervention, stress mindset only intervention, control group, and then the combo. And the combo group, the results that they see are unbelievable about when you combine those two topics, the way it affects students, not only performance, but the way they dealt, dealt with their like life stressors, the way they dealt with stressors, stressors in school, even their like physiological response to stress. It just improved a lot of things. So you said it, and I'm just like kind of underlying what you said. The problem is when we think that it's this one size fits all growth mindset solves all your problems, that's where we go wrong. It's about bringing in more stuff and rounding this out so people can understand like, okay, I have these tools at my disposal and now I'm understanding the context and the situation where it might help me the most. And then the last thing that I'll say about the meta-analysis, which is great, when you read it and and this is like true with some of Jaeger's work as well and Dweck's. What they're really trying to figure out is what is the most effective, efficient, and low-cost intervention that you could deliver to students across the nation? And so a lot of these interventions are like, yeah, you have a student alone watch like a 30-minute video and that's the intervention. And then there's like no further contact with the student, like no one else talks about this ever, but that, and it makes sense that that's what they want to try to figure out is like, if you could create a 30 minute video that a student could watch alone, and that has an impact on their like grades and academic performance, that's amazing. And so the, like, when they're talking about an intervention, more times than not, it's that, well, what you and I are doing and what a lot of other people are doing when you're thinking about growth mindset is much more than that. It's no, we want to be talking about this like every day. We want this to change the language about how we talk about learning. We want to spend time with the leader and upgrading the feedback that we give and even how we are like grading people. Like it's just much more intensive. That isn't what they're measuring in many of these uh, like studies. And it makes sense that that's not what they're pursuing. Um, but sometimes people like confuse the two. It's like, oh, Growth mindset intervention isn't effective, but when you read it, it's like, oh, a 30-minute video that a student watched alone didn't have a significant impact on their academic performance. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Because one, that's not the best way to make a change. Um, so yeah, all these things are important to consider and understand. But um, I think the scary part is a lot of people might see on Twitter the headline or see like the title of the meta-analysis or something like that and then just assume, oh, growth mindset doesn't matter. And then to me, that's kind of heartbreaking because if you really, really get to the core of it, it's the belief that we're capable of change. And I think that that is a fact like we all are capable of change how fast and how much of course that's different for all of us but i think it's really unfair for us not to share that idea with as many people as we can because it is true we can all change we can all get better at stuff that's being human that's the magic of our brain and so Teaching people that doesn't solve every problem but it would be unfair to hold that idea back because we see a, like a, a post on Twitter. 
There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> so where, what thread am I going to pull on? I'll pull on a couple. Number one, you call it combo. I call it blending. Like, yes, we talk about resilience to me. Resilience is grit. Like let's use Duckworth passion and perseverance yep. for long-term goals. Um, I know you talked about hardiness. You were actually the first person to bring hardiness back. I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. It's amazing how stuff gets repackaged or reshaped yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or goes away and has its moment and then doesn't whatever. Yeah. Let's just stay with grit. But then there's yeah. this piece of agility, right? Because I always say like the pandemic taught us, if you were just trying to grit out the pandemic, good luck, like passion and perseverance, <laughs> like no <laughs> shot, man. Yeah, Cause we yeah. were living in a wicked world where things were adjusting. So you needed agility. You needed to yes. find a way to do yes. things differently. Mm -hmm. um, and if you multiply grit and agility by a growth mindset, the belief, which this is what you're speaking to belief is a starting point. It's not hundred percent. So yes. um, if you, if you combine all of that grit, agility, growth mindset, now you have three different things. That's what leads to resilience. But we live in a yes. world where we want things to have one, like uh -huh. title of a book is one thing. It's grit, yeah. it's presence, it's yeah. mindset and really growth mm -hmm. mindset. And yeah. even when I was, when I was writing my book, which is all about polarity. So in preparation, we're one, one way in performance, yeah. we're another way, um, like polarity is so underrated. But mm -hmm. when I talked to a publisher and a writing coach, they're like, your book should be called the performance mind. And I was like, well, yeah. what about the preparation mind? That's a big piece yeah. that I'm talking uh -huh. about. Oh, no, that's too yeah. complicated. Keep the main thing, the main thing, just make it one thing. It's, it's tough. It, it is to me there is almost always a polarity. And if you look inside every book, if you actually go inside, just see mm -hmm. these two by two graphs in almost every book, whether it's Radical Candor or yep. Amy Edmondson, and I know you're big on psychological safety, you'll see, well, she's saying we should have high psych safety and high performance standards. She's not actually just saying high psych safety. She's saying it's two things. Amy Edmondson's radical candor. It's not just one thing. It's not just saying to challenge directly. It also is saying care mm -hmm. personally. And even Angela Duckworth's work, it's not just saying to persevere. It's also saying be passionate about what you're persevering right. on. Yeah. And so we miss the and, and we uh -huh. narrow things down into a little pretty box <laughs> so we can sell some shit and yeah. I get it. But if you go underneath the hood to your point, it's almost always a blend or a combo. And yeah. we miss the blending in the combo and we miss, right. we just focus on the singular thing and it gets yep. us into all kinds of trouble. Um, 100%. Yeah. So, so for you, I think this is, I, I mentioned generations because the, that was honestly the first video. I think we were following each other on Twitter. So I was familiar yeah, with your stuff, yeah. but the generation thing, I was like, Oh <laughs> man, he just did something on generations. I've been fighting this fight for as long as I can remember. Yeah. I think the whole thing is ridiculous and malarkey. Uh -huh. and, and maybe yeah. it's one of the 12 things that makes me who I am. But there's also when I was born, the town I grew up in, uh, did, I have, did I have parents that parents that love me? Did I grow up? Right. Am I homosexual or am I heterosexual? How do right. I identify from a gender standpoint? Um, you know, am I an athlete? Am I into music? I mean, there's so uh -huh. much that makes up our identity. And yet we just say, oh, millennials are lazy. Gen X is this. I don't even, yeah. Gen Z is that. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about the people that you had on your podcast that shared yeah. their yeah. research on generations? Because 
you did you did such a better job of explaining what I have been trying to fight without any sort of data. Uh, I tried yeah. to go to like the Pew study and try to look up old research or pull up old clips about people talking about generations from the past. Yeah. And they basically are talking about the same thing. Every generation thinks the next generation's lazy. Um, yeah. And it's really a lazy take. Uh, so yeah. yeah, talk about uh, what you found around generations and your research so, and bring that to light. So... Court Rudolph and David Costanza, they're like big time researchers. They are researchers. And I can't remember how I stumbled upon one of their articles, but it was fascinating. It was something like fair, like RIP generational labels. We don't need you anymore. Something like that. And I read it. It was really interesting. And at first I was just entertained at the way they wrote the article and it was just kind of funny, but then I started digging into it. And then the way it connected to my work is again, I care about learning. I started to think about the way that traditional generational labels can be limiting to people's development in the workplace because of the sweeping labels we have, uh, like the gen, I don't even remember all the generation gen X can't learn or boomers aren't open-minded and can't grow and change or millennials are lazy. And then we put people in these boxes and we're changing the way we treat them. It's like, yeah, that's going to get in the way of learning and performance. So once I like saw that connection, I did a big deep dive. So that 20 minute podcast took me six months to make because I was finding all sorts of papers really digging up because honestly, I was scared to make it because this is a big zig. It's like generational labels are a part of what everyone, like we all use them. And to come out and make a video that's like, yeah, we shouldn't use them. Like that was scary for me. So I like did my homework. And so here's the way that they talk about it and the way that they think about it. And it took me a while to understand, but let's see if we can explain it properly. There are differences on the surface that we see between people. We think it's generational, but more times than not, it's something else. More times than not, it's what they call an age effect. An age effect is you can think about someone uh, like the, the way they explained it to me is like voting. Older people are more likely to vote than younger people. And so you look at the data at the surface and go, oh, the boomers, they vote more than millennials. But then when you really understand and zoom out, you see when the boomers were 25, their voting uh, turnout was the same as a 25-year-old would be now. So it's this wave you go through that as you get older in life, you're more likely to vote. But then we call it generational, but it's just sort of like how old you are in that particular moment has nothing to do with like the generation that you're in. So that's the age effect. Hey, Trevor, Again, just, to we add, can, just to add yeah. to that, those boomers were also labeled as hippies and, yes. you know, anti-war yes. and they were labeled all of these things yeah. when they were younger. And if you look yes. at it from a, how they vote, those hippies, that's what we classified <laughs> the whole generation as, yeah. are the most conservative voting people like in the history I of know. America. 
And yeah. so like the other piece is people change, like we're talking about with growth mindset and they yeah. evolve their thinking and what uh -huh. they value at 18 is different than what they might value at 68 because right. life changes. Um, like I had kids, my life changed drastically. Uh, right. if you get fired from a job, if you're on unemployment, like mm -hmm. things change in our lives that change how we vote. So right. I think that's another piece that often gets lost yep. in that in that dialogue and that nuance. But your point, I hadn't thought of until you had brought it up. So thanks for yeah. No, so it's like the age effect more times than not is what's creating these differences. But then we misinterpret it as a generational difference when it's not. Then the other one that they brought up is what's called a period effect. And again, this is a little confusing, but makes sense when you get there, which is the way that traditional people talked about generational labels is this thing happened and then this thing happened in society and it only affected this group of people. And that's usually not the case. More times than not, when something happens in society, if it's big enough, like the introduction of smartphones or new technology or like 9-11, it affects everyone that's like above five years old that anyone that can like experience it it affects us and it changes society as a whole it's not just if you're this age at that time that changes you and so there is a cool uh analysis that one of them explained and, and we went through this on the podcast which is like if you look at millennials now the amount of millennials no the the in they, how did they measure it? It was pride in your country when you sign up to be in the military. Millennials now have more pride in their country than boomers did when they signed up when they were in their early 20s. So you look at that and go, millennials have more pride in their country than boomers. No, it's everyone post 9-11 shows more pride in their country and service. So everyone, it's not just one generation. How so old, again, how, Trevor, how old were you when 9-11 happened? I was in like middle school. So 13, I don't know, somewhere in there. Because I was a senior in high school living right outside Washington, D.C. Right. And in our pictures, like my buddy's pictures when we graduated from high school, there is a big ass American flag that we're holding. Right. Um, and I guarantee you, if we had graduated the year before, we wouldn't be holding a big ass American flag. hundred percent. So events to your point, events impact it's, how we see so, the world. And, and then, so the, the surface level data, it, the conclusion you come to is millennials have more pride than boomers in their country. No, they don't. Everyone has more pride post 9-11. So again, there's more to the data than just a generational thing. And I know I'm kind of I'm kind of rambling, but the whole idea, if we take this back to learning, is just it's a shame that we use these artificial labels and put people in boxes and then significantly change the opportunities we give them and the way we treat them. And if you just get rid of those labels and go, okay, we're not saying everyone's the same. But what we are saying is if someone is struggling with something in the workplace or even in sports, don't blame it on their generation. Just address what they're struggling with. You don't have to be like, oh, classic millennial. It's like, no, if they're not engaged, figure out how to change that for that person. 
the labels are unnecessary. Focus on the skill, focus on the idea that this person is capable of growth and getting better. There's really no need to like put them in this box. And I know I'm being kind of rambly with this, this topic. Um, but if people are interested, if you just search Court Rudolph or David Costanza, their work is phenomenal. And they do a really, really good job of just like from the ground up showing that one, there's no science that backs up generational labels and two, just showing like a better way of thinking about these things. And that was honestly, that episode had the fewest views of any of the ones that we put out this season. But I also think it was one of the most interesting because it's such a curve or like a zig from what most people think about the the topic. Why do you think it had the least views? Because probably most people didn't see the connection between that and learning. Mm -hmm. So like, um, I think the episode we did on what we're calling like the new era of growth mindset, which is the idea that you have to like weave in these other topics to get the most out of it. That did really well, maybe because growth mindset is a popular topic, um, especially with the people that follow me. Uh, we did one on just, that was called like how to change that got a lot of views because that's something that's like, you see the connection between that topic and then learning and growing where just a video or an episode called like generational labels maybe isn't as clickable as some of the others. And so I think that's one reason. And maybe another reason is it does fly in the face of a lot of the ways that we talk about different generations and the labels we use. And maybe people didn't want to be challenged on that. You're bringing up something that I think about for my book. I talked about the value being humble in preparation and arrogant in performance. That word nice. arrogant really triggers some people. And mm -hmm. even before that, I was thinking it might be narcissistic in performance. And I ended up settling on arrogance. Not, I did a lot of work on it, a lot yeah. of work and got a lot right. of feedback and looked uh -huh. at a lot of evidence to suggest that arrogant was the right word. It would have been way easier for me to write confident in performance, but I went right. with arrogant and I've since wondered if that was the right way to go. Uh, it's what I believe to be true. And I feel yeah. good that I went with what I believe to be true, mm -hmm. but there's like a cost there, right? Like it's at tough. the end of the day, I wanted people to just understand that they need to shift their mind from one way to another way. And in the first chapter, if they read the word arrogant and they've had an arrogant boss or an arrogant parent mm -hmm. or an arrogant mm -hmm. friend and been triggered by that, they then shut down the rest of the book. Yeah, I, like maybe I could have reached more people and impacted more people if I had gone with confidence. so hard. And it's so, I, so hard. I, I wrestle with like, I tend to just do what I believe in and follow mm. that gut yep. um, as my North star. But I wonder mm -hmm. if I sometimes miss the mark, even with this podcast, like I just have a broad, broad, I interview all kinds of different people that I'm interested mm. in learning from. And I just focus on me. Um, yep. But maybe there are opportunities that I'm missing by not focusing more um, on it. And for someone that's spending six months on a 20 minute podcast, I would imagine that you give this a lot of thought. So I'm curious to get your perspective on when do you speak the full truth or when do you maybe water it down so that maybe it can have a better impact? Yeah. So I struggle with this a lot too. I am probably more like you, which is I'm going to do it how I would like to consume it. And I'm going to talk about the topics that are interesting to me. 
And if I do it in a way that I would like it and I would be interested, I think that's good enough. I think that you and I could probably have bigger followings if we went a little in the opposite direction of like maybe more dramatic titles or more like clickbait clips. And maybe in the short run, that would get build a bigger following or we would get more likes and retweets. But I think for the long game, I think maybe the way that we're doing it is the right one, that the quality of people that are following us, I think there's more to that than maybe the quantity. And by like staying true of like, nah, this is like what I believe and this is right. I just think that that's a better long play. And I, I'm speaking on this because I think when I was younger, I tried the other approach and it just didn't feel right of like, you take something, you try to like exaggerate it out and make it seem like it's more than it is, or you're like the language that you use or what you call it or how you talk about it isn't completely accurate. You're not like lying, but you're just trying to basically sell it. And I think now the way that I'm doing it feels right, feels better. We're not getting the views that we used to, um, but it just, I think this is the way to do it. And it is tough though, when you see people in our industry who are a little bit better at the marketing and the sales and the naming, and you see like the traction that they get. But what I just keep reminding myself is like, what scoreboard are you playing with? And the scoreboard that I want to play with is when I make something, whether people agree with the topic or argument or not, they know that like a lot of thought went into it. So it's like if Trevor publishes something like a lot of time and care was put into this product. Um, and so I kind of want them to, to trust the process that goes into the things that I publish. And I am more concerned with like, as long as like people are curious about these things and like, willing to sit and watch a 20 minute video about like a topic that might not be the most interesting thing. It's like, those are the people I want. I don't care if like, if you and I were trying to make content that only worked on TikTok, it'd be a lot different than what we're doing. And we could maybe win the TikTok game, but the, the people that would follow us there aren't the same like quality of followers that we'd get by posting long form content. Maybe the amount will be lower this way, but the quality is better. And so when you're creating stuff that's true to who you are and like accurate and true, I think you're just filtering out a lot of maybe like low quality followers that wouldn't make that big of a difference anyways. I think about it as like the Barry Bonds effect. And I always wonder how Barry Bonds feels and thinks, because this guy was a surefire yeah. Hall of Famer incredible one of the all-time greats uh, i mean I, confirmed or not like most likely definitely yeah. using yeah. something <laughs> he wasn't supposed to be using and like was it worth it and you're talking about the yeah. long game that's one piece to it but the other piece is selfish like fulfillment like what would give me fulfillment and what would make yeah. me feel 
good yeah. about what I've done. And I wonder like Barry Bonds, he's probably sitting there and being like, dude, I, of course I'm all of famous. So what? I took some stuff. It helped me hit a ball a little further, but I was already mm-hmm. on my way and yeah. everybody else was taking it too. And I still yeah. hit it further than them and more than them. And I can see the justification there of that. And I can understand that and can empathize with that. For mm-hmm. me, I was once at a conference and the keynote got up there and talked about buying Twitter followers and said, the reason I'm here is because I bought a bunch of Twitter followers and people won't buy for you, buy from you unless they believe you're an authority. And so he was justifying his buying of Twitter followers and marketing. He's like, we all are in marketing and they thought that I had a, I'm bigger than actually I was. And therefore they're likely to uh, buy my content. Mm-hmm. So it opened a door for me. He was keynoting. I was on a panel and I, <laughs> I like went through this whole thing. Like maybe I'm being, you know, on my high horse here and not buying Twitter followers. Um, yeah. and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm thinking yeah. about this wrong. And I asked a few people and got some feedback. And then I came back to this idea of like, what would be fulfilling to me is that yeah. I would never know. I would never know if I still could have gotten there without it. And I'm sure yeah. if I were Barry Bonds, I would never know like mm-hmm. if I still could have done X without it. And yep. I don't, I don't think I want to live that way. So I don't know if yep. that resonates with you, but no, that's it how does. I think, I, th- I think I like it again. That's just playing with it as we get older and just like smarter in what we do. It's like, and this is true in all things in life, not just what we do like professionally. It's like play with the right scoreboard. Like what's the game you're trying to win here. Um, and I think finding something that you, feels true um and and for me it's literally and i i need to like just put this on my desk it's just like make stuff that you think is cool and like i think tiktok is awesome but i would be terrible at tiktok to be honest and like i've thought about it and almost started a channel of like oh yeah i could do this it's like no like i don't need to be good at that that that's not a game that i need to like spend time trying to win it's like i think my lane with content is to be honest with you, I don't think I'm a good interviewer. Like you're a really good interviewer. And I've listened to some of your episodes and like the way that you can go back and forth with a guest is really good. I'm trash at that. So when I make an episode, it's not just an interview because it's awkward and like, it's not good at all. I create an essay. And so like, I'm going to, I'll take clips of the interview and create an essay out of it because that's sort of like in my wheelhouse and that's the style of content that I create. Same is true with the videos that we make. They're video essays. Um, and like, those are things that I think are cool. And so like, that's the lane. And I don't need to probably waste time figuring out how to like create a 60 second TikTok that engages a bunch of people on that platform. It's like, I think that there's, we can create enough opportunities by doing the things and staying true to like who we are and I think that's okay just to like focus on those things. It's interesting because there's two pieces. We started our conversation today about skills <laughs> and how yeah. you can acquire skills and get better. And right. there's this acknowledgement of like, hey, I'm trash at interviewing. So I could acquire the skill and be okay yep. at it. But there's also 100%. value in recognizing, hey, I'm starting here. I'm starting yep. on second base. I'm trying to get to home. Let's yep. use my second base rather than start from the dugout. And 100%. 
that that is also a big piece to getting to where you want to go is knowing, hey, where are my strengths? How do I nurture the nature that I do possess? And what are I- the skills that would benefit me in 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 a way that feels like true to who I am? It's like you and I could eventually figure out TikTok, or I could eventually get really good at inter- interviews. It's just like for what it is that I'm trying to do, it's not something that I need to spend too much time on. On the other hand, there's all sorts of other skills that I've spent my time on that are really, really valuable and they help me like do the things I need to do. And so you, that's another sort of misconception with like the growth mindset stuff. It's not even like, yes, you could get better at any skill. That doesn't mean you're going to get better at every skill. And a part of it, unrelated topic, is just kind of being able to zoom out and go, okay, what? where am I going to get the most bang for my buck? It's not always just focus on a strength. It's also not always just focus on a weakness. It's again, the blend of the two and knowing like the time and place for each one. So there are areas in my life that were strong weaknesses, but over time I've turned them into strengths and one is public speaking. I am good at it now because I've got a lot of practice doing it and I was garbage at it when I started and I would turn purple anytime people looked at me. And so this is a skill that I built and it was necessary and it was like worth it to spend the time building that skill. There are other skills that would be not worth it that I'm really garbage at. And so it's just kind of like picking and choosing your spots, but then this underlying belief that because I'm good at learning and I know that I can get better at stuff, now it gets a little more exciting of like, huh, what if we took three weeks and really dove in on this thing? in three weeks, I could be like enough, like kind of good at this and it could help me for the rest of my life. Like, that's pretty cool to think about. What are you curious about right now? Um, storytelling and so storytelling in, in the way of like, when we're presenting, when we're doing a pod or video or a workshop, When you're telling a good story, that is the height of the engagement. Like that's when people are most in. And that's probably the most sticky part of whatever content that you're making. That's probably what they're going to remember next week. And so one, getting good at storytelling, but knowing how to deploy it in a way of creating engagement now and wrapping up the point that you're trying to make in the story so that it is something that sticks in a week. And then also related would be like, what are the things you can do when you're working with a group of people besides storytelling to make a a concept or idea really, really stick with them, um, hopefully for like the long run. So it's not just something that makes sense when I'm saying it right now, but it's something that somehow sticks around for weeks or months. I want to go back to storytelling. Take us through a process. So you you mentioned, hey, what am I going to do for the next three weeks? Take us through your learning process. If you're taking a theme like storytelling from yep. you know soup to nuts here, uh, start with the soup and and end with the nuts. And I know it may not be the same for all of them. You mentioned spending six months on one previously, but what yep. does it look like for you to really engross yourself and learn? So for the storytelling one. It's been kind of a longer process, but it was, I found a really good book about it. It's called Story Worthy by Matthew Dix. I listened to that and the whole book is about that. It's like, people think about stories all wrong. Here's how to do it. Here's some things that will make 
better stories. And then I reached out to him and I talked to him a couple of times. And once I crossed this threshold of, I kind of get what he's saying. I understand the adjustments I need to make. The next level for me is backstage reps. Backstage reps are, I'm probably not going to go unleash this uh, at a workshop immediately, but I can start to experiment with these strategies, maybe if I'm telling a story to friends or family. So get some low stakes reps, some backstage reps of just getting the hang of it. And then then the next threshold you cross is, okay, I'm kind of good at it. And now I start to weave it into my workshops in small ways. I start to use it in the videos or pods. And so it's this process of, I start with just get kind of good. And once I'm kind of good, I try to use it in my day-to-day as much as possible. And again, in a small way, it's like, you don't want it to be such a big risk that if like (laughs) I mess this up, the whole workshop is trashed and like the people that hired me are mad. It's like, no, you can weave these in in small ways. And then over time you get really good at the thing. Then the other thing that I've done that's helped me a lot. So with Matthew Dix, for some of the videos that I've done over the last year, I just hired him to be like my story coach. And so probably the best video that I've done in the last couple of years was on psychological safety. And it was with Amy Edmondson. So like we interviewed her, we built the video with her. But what people don't know is like I hired Matthew Dix to be the story coach, which is for a month and a half, I was sending him rough drafts. I just like record like this on Zoom and then he would watch and then send me feedback. And so not only did that make the video really good, I think, but that was like golden opportunity for me to learn. It was so much more interesting than just reading his book, which is to see like, how would he use this tool for me in this moment in making this argument? And so that was really cool too. Now that's not accessible to everyone. Like that did cost some money, but it was like a cool way to get to like experiment with these strategies and like learn from someone who's smarter than me. By the way, uh, just to capture something you said earlier, I'm trying to figure out what goes into moving people or getting them to learn beyond storytelling. I think mm-hmm. you just ex- you just shared it. It's experiencing it and actually playing with it. And yeah. experiential yeah. learning is a yeah. massive game changer. Statistics can be can resonate with certain people too, but that mm-hmm. experiencing it, I think you just hit on. I want to just go to another piece though, because I reach out to you cold. I say, Hey, Trevor, love your content. would love to have you in the podcast. You say, let's do it. Here we are. You know, and I know if I've had on 340 people on this podcast, uh, I've probably had 160 that have said, and eh, not for me, including people yeah. that you've had on your podcast, right? <laughs> Who I've reached out to, I've had connections to. I thought that they would say yes to me. They said no to me. They say yes to you. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. vice versa, whatever. Yeah, for sure. Fear. Right. Uh, A lot of people would say the very beginning of your example of how you learn is I'm going to reach out to Matthew Dix um, and I'm going to just go for it. A lot of people are afraid to just do that. Right. Um, (laughs) What advice do you have for people if they are cold calling? Because I think that is something that everybody has to do in some way, shape or form. They don't have to be in sales, uh, but we all sometimes want to reach out to people. Even I've been around. I was at a Starbucks once. And Paul Rabel, who's one of the best lacrosse players ever, walks into the Starbucks and I'm sitting there with a client of mine. And I said, oh, like Paul's one of the people I have on my list that I want to have on my podcast. And she's like, Mm. Brian, 
go talk to him. I'm like, no, mm -hmm. I don't want to bother him. Mm -hmm. He's getting his coffee. Yeah. Yeah, sure yeah, enough, yeah. I went up to him, had a conversation. He was going to an event that night that I was going to. And I didn't ask him then, but that night I'm like, I'll see you at the event. That night I was like, Hey, I'd love to have you in the podcast. He's like, let's do it. Um, nice. but the fear is real. Like I don't like reaching out to people cold. And, um, mm -hmm. I'm curious for you, you have to do it probably as part of your learning experience. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for people when they're reaching out to a Matthew Dix or an Amy Edmondson or a Katie Milkman or whoever it is that you're trying to spend some time with? It's going to work more times than you think. <laughs> it's like what I would tell people. And so like, I was surprised, like when I first started, I was just emailing people and they'd always say yes, because more times than not, people just talk themselves out of sending the email. Now, this was 10 years ago. It was much easier 10 years ago than it is now. It's hard now because everyone in the world has podcasts. Like a lot of these people are getting asked a lot. And so I think step one is like, at least give yourself a chance. Like it, it's going to work more times than you think. And it's definitely going to work more times if you try it than if you don't try it. Like that's for sure. So it's a numbers game. And then the other thing I try to do is, is just like show that when I'm reaching out, it's not just you're famous and I want you to be on this episode to grow my podcast. It's like, there's a reason I want you on. And so like, who, what's a good example? Um, I guess with Amy Edmondson, it was like, Hey, I read your book like three years ago and I can't stop thinking about it. And it's my most like underlined book that I've ever read in my life. And I want to make a, a video about it. We would need to do like a 30 minute interview. Is there any way in the world we could do that? It's like, it's like a tailored and genuine ask of like, I'm not just asking you because you're a famous person. I'm asking you because I really, really care about this topic. And I've like learned a lot from something that you put out. So that seems to help a little bit too. What have you done to overcome fears in, in your world or your life? I know you've seen a therapist. I know mm -hmm. you've also had a bout of cancer. I mean, there, there's some other pieces here that we're probably not going to get to today. <laughs> yeah. um, but fear is is a word that I hear quite a bit. Um, for some, it can be helpful. Back to polarity. I, I talk yeah. about fear and preparation actually being helpful, um, yep. uh, but not necessarily when we're performing. Uh, for you, is there anything that you consistently do to make sure that the fear doesn't have you and that you have the fear? I think like step one is just accepting that you're never going to completely turn it off. And so it goes back to playing with the right scoreboard. So when I was younger... Like an example would be, I'd get nervous before a presentation and I would be ashamed of that because I was like, oh, I'm nervous. That's bad. I must not have practiced enough or like I'm not prepared or I'm too young to do this. So it's like nerves are bad. I'm feeling nerves, which means I am bad and I'm doing something wrong. So that was the scoreboard I was playing with. The presence of nerves there's a bad sign. I'm losing this game. And the way I look at it now is just sort of with a different scoreboard. It's like, no, I want to score my actions, not necessarily my feelings. So I'll be real. I get nervous before my present presentations now, but now I have a deeper understanding of the nerves that I know that when you care about something that involves uncertainty, you're probably going to feel something. And so 
if I'm nervous before a presentation now, it's not I'm too young and not smart and didn't practice. It's I really, really care how this goes. And we don't know how this is going to go, caring plus uncertainty. And so it's a similar feeling with a different interpretation. So I think the same is true for most people, which is spend more time thinking about the actions and not fighting this losing battle of I have to feel perfect to send this email or do this thing. Because like I would argue that that's just the wrong scoreboard to play with. That's a really hard battle to fight, which is to feel perfect in every moment of your life. It's like being human is the fact that we are not going to feel exactly right all the time. But you know this even better than I do. People can perform well and not feel great. It's like you can be nervous and perform well. You could feel confident and perform crappy. Like all these things are true. So like how you feel doesn't always dictate your performance. There's more to the equation. And so that's, again, we, we keep saying this phrase a lot, but it's playing with the right scoreboard. And that's what I try to do now. I love it. Um, we'll close with this concept. You, I love caring plus uncertainty equals like feeling. Yeah. And I, I think I adjusted my, my scoreboard at some point to feeling happy versus feeling alive. And yeah. when I changed that, nice. uh, I stopped chasing happiness and started chasing yeah. opportunities to feel alive. And nice. so the only way to feel alive is to develop a relationship with the unknown. And yes. it's why you and I both love sports is there's an unknown in sports mm -hmm. and that's what makes it beautiful. If we knew the score and we knew what was going to happen, sports would not be all that interesting business the same way. And yeah. so I love the, just a framework or, or the, um, the calculation there of caring plus uncertainty equals feeling and feeling actually is what being alive is all about. Can you imagine being a sociopath and not feeling like, that I know. Yeah. Suck. And yeah. if we take that approach, then all of a sudden feeling sadness, feeling jealous, feeling envy, feeling anger, frustration, these quote unquote negative feelings and emotions are mm -hmm. part of what being alive also means. Yep. Um, Trevor, we could jam, I think for <laughs> a long time. I know I don't play guitar, but if I played guitar, you just, you know, rip some yeah. chords and um, <laughs> this would be magic. Uh, mm -hmm. First of all, I said it at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. Thank you for all that you are doing. Your content is spectacular. Whatever you're doing, as painful as it is, keep <laughs> doing it for our society's sake. I will. Yeah. Um, and if people want to learn more about you and what you're up to, if they want to hire you, bring you in to speak, or to do a workshop, or obviously to check out the podcast or, or the video content. His video content, by the way, I just want to make sure this is really clear. It is really high level stuff. So he, when he said an essay earlier, he means it. It is a video essay where they bring in all kinds of um, character cues and all kinds of information that really tells amazing stories. And then they splice in these brilliant researchers. Yeah. And I just think, man, oh man, if there were a high school that I wanted to go to or a college course that I'd want to go to, I would mm -hmm. hope it would in, in, involve a 30 minute video from you and uh, yeah. it would be impactful. So uh, where can people follow along as you continue? Yeah. If you just go to thelearnerlab.com, all the stuff is there. Um, I, I'm with you. I think the videos are the best. I think this season of our podcast, there's eight episodes. Um, that was some of our best work too. And so all that stuff is there and my email is there as well. Perfect. I am at strongskills.co slash podcast where you can listen to all of these conversations. 
Twitter, X, whatever that gets called, at Brian Levinson, <laughs> uh, and LinkedIn, at Brian Levinson as well. Trevor's on Twitter. Uh, he posts some great content there as well, so you can follow him. But please go over to his website and check it out. Trevor, this has been a blast, man. I really am glad that that I reached out. You know, sometimes you're following someone on social media and you just like what they're putting out, and you say, you know what? That's the one I want to learn a little yeah. longer with. So I'm glad I shot my shot and uh, that we were able to connect. So thanks for coming on. Nah, this was a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If someone is struggling with something in the workplace or even in sports, don't blame it on their generation. Just address what they're struggling with. You don't have to be like, ah, classic millennial. It's like, no, if they're not engaged, figure out how to change that for that person. The labels are unnecessary. Focus on the skill, focus on the idea that this person is capable of growth and getting better. There's really no need to like put them in this box.